electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear an interview with physician, bioethicist, and author, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Among his many credentials, he's vice provost for global initiatives and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Previously, he served as special advisor for health policy under President Obama and at the National Institutes of Health. Currently, he's a member of the COVID-19 task force for former Vice President Joe Biden. And his latest book is called Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? We spoke on July 22nd, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, The Path Forward series. Take a listen. I want to start with something really interesting I read from you recently, uh, which was an interview you did with the publication from Penn, where you said, you're an optimist, but realistically, looking at the future, you think we get back to normal in November 2021. So my first question about that is, what does normal actually mean? Well, it means that people, enough people have been vaccinated, we can go back to sort of normal economic and social activities. You can have a dinner party inside your house. You can go shopping uh, in a store. Um, and the usual activities, taking the subway or you know what have you, is going to be okay. I think that's what it looks like. So it takes until November 2021 for us to get to that point. Help us understand, I mean, how we get there. It's all contingent on a vaccine. It's possible we could have prophylactic medication that you take and prevents you from getting COVID. Um, so I don't want to rule out that possibility. I, you know, we, we've recently had some data on interferon. I've heard some data on some other potential drugs. But barring that as a breakthrough, yes, it does depend upon getting a vaccine and not only getting a vaccine, but getting a vaccine in the arms of hundreds of millions of Americans, somewhere between 250 and 300 million Americans, uh, that's the big challenge. And that's why, realistically, it's sort of 15 or 16 months from now. Right. Well, I want to ask you also about an op-ed that you wrote maybe at this point, it was a couple months ago, uh, with Dr. Paul Offit, who was a guest on our live stream just a few weeks ago, um, where yeah. you wrote about your concerns that there could be some political pressure on the FDA to approve a COVID-19 vaccine as kind of an October surprise before the presidential election. You know, after you guys wrote that, the FDA put out its guidelines for what it expects to see to approve a COVID-19 vaccine, at least 50% efficacy. Uh, did that make you feel better about this potential for pressure on the FDA? It does make me feel better. They put a marker in the ground and uh, they have said what it's gonna take. Um, you know, 50% efficacy is uh, not great, but it's certainly uh, very good and uh, it will require us to immunize a huge swath of the population. But by the way, 50% efficacy means uh, uh, that we're, you know, if you give the vaccine to 
all 330 million Americans, we might not actually be at the 70% herd immunity rate that we need to, um, and that will turn out to be a challenge. The one thing I'm really concerned about, Meg, is, is not the efficacy here, um, but from a practical standpoint, uh, the durability. How long is that vaccine gonna work? Because we've already seen that a lot of people get naturally infected with COVID, the immunity goes down. Um, and while it, you know, we don't know what the rate is, we don't know how well people will be protected from uh, these potential vaccines. But if it's short-lived, that may, that may not allow us to get back to normal too fast. Yeah, I mean, it's so early in the lifespan of knowing about this virus. And then of course, also in, in the development of these new vaccines, uh, is there anything you can deduce from the data you've seen so far that would give us any clues about the potential durability? I mean, AstraZeneca, working with Oxford, for example, has said it hopes based on the previous constructs, like for the MERS virus, they might get a year's worth of uh, immunity from this vaccine. What do you think? Uh, well, this is an empirical question and we're going to have to wait. I will tell you the one most hopeful piece of data I found was in the Lancet paper that they published uh, just a couple days ago. They said that they had seen an increase in the cellular immunity. So for your listeners, you know, one aspect of immunity is creating antibodies, but there's another part to the immune system that actually revs up cells. So T cells that both identify foreign invaders and kill them are important. And they're also, it turns out, important for revving up antibody production and memory that we saw this invader before. Um, and in their paper, they noted that there was an increase in the T cells uh, um, against the coronavirus. And so I think that gave me some uh, hope that we might be able to get uh, some longer term immunity from this. I, I will point out also to your listeners something which maybe Paul Offit said, and maybe he didn't, but he educated me on, which is for half the vaccines we have approved, um, we actually don't know the immune mechanism by which they protect people. We know they work because we've tested them, but we don't know this is the marker, the antibodies go up, or this is the marker, the T killer cells go up that confers immunity. So it's something in there, and, and it may be the same in this uh, uh, vaccine, that you know maybe it doesn't work because the antibodies go up, but something else works. Uh, maybe the antibody level is unconnected to how protective the vaccine is. We just don't know uh, yet, and we're gonna have to know. Just the other thing I would say is, you know, the first vaccine that gets out there may not be the best, and uh, mm -hmm. we have to wait. And the other thing I want people to think about is, well, you may need two doses. It may not, it may be that one's not enough, you need a second, but maybe that second needs to be a different kind of vaccine, not the, the first kind you got. Lots of permutations here that we're going to have to uncover and, and investigate and study. Hmm. How do you envision the initial rollout of these vaccines going? Um, if, you know, Pfizer, for example, which just made this this deal to supply 100 million doses to the U.S. today, they say they could be applying for regulatory approval in October. Um, but, you know, that's 100 million doses and that's not even immediately. And they, they have to do two doses. That's 50 million people. So how do you see, you know, this getting rolled out and to whom? Well, that's one of the reasons for the November 2021 projection. So the first 
tranche of vaccines is almost inevitably going to go to frontline healthcare workers, nursing home workers, uh, other first responders, uh, people at high risk who we have pretty good confidence are can mount a good immune response and protect themselves. One of the worries of a vaccine like this is that elderly people who are at very high risk from COVID may not mount a good response. You know, when we give them the flu vaccine, they actually get higher doses because they don't mount such a good uh, immune response to the. Um, so that's one of the things you have we have to look at very carefully is which groups actually respond well to this vaccine. So that's where the first set of, uh, of uh, vaccines are going to go. You and I, average people who aren't frontline healthcare workers, aren't necessarily police workers, we're down the list, and that's going to be later. So I believe, if I've got it right, that the Pfizer sign, signed the deal for $100 million by the end of this calendar year, but then um, uh, there are options for more uh, in 2021. Um, you know, J&J &J has said that they, they can produce, uh, I think, also uh, 100 million doses this year uh, of their vaccine and then up to a billion, uh, 250 million each quarter for 2021. So I think that's it is going to be phased in over time and people are going to be immunized over time. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So I want to go to one of our viewer questions, which kind of ties in something that you wrote a few years ago um, about the age of 75 and for your own uh, decisions about healthcare at that age. I've seen a lot of very strong responses to that piece. I read the whole article and I think I understand what you were getting at, which was for your own personal decisions, you will um, decline medical treatment after the age of 75. Um, is that still your view? And then to bring up the question from the audience, it's from Ben Davies, who's a doctor. He's a urologist in Pittsburgh. He asks, should patients over the age of 75 get the vaccine? So first of all, um, let me be clear. What I said in that article is not all medical treatment, uh, just treatment where the main purpose of the treatment is to prolong my life. So if I had the classic example, terminal cancer, uh, or not terminal cancer, widely metastatic cancer, I would not take treatment if they're trying to preserve my life after 75. And you're right, Meg, to emphasize, that's a personal choice. That's not a policy choice. Now, say this vaccine, uh, works in people over 75 and people over 75 want the vaccine. Of course they should get the vaccine. The whole point of the article is we to empower people to think about their life and what they want for themselves. It's to wake people up and to say, don't go blindly because you know, say, almost everyone says, I don't wanna live as long as possible. I want high quality life. It's not quantity, it's quality, but then you know, when they make their decisions, they're making all these quantity decisions. Yes, let me live as long as possible. Um, I want people just to be conscious about what they're choosing and to make a very explicit choice for themselves. So if people over 75, they want the vaccine and it works for them, we should absolutely give, give it to them. No two questions about it. You know, I've been working hard for the last, uh, whatever, four or five months on COVID, trying to protect elderly people and trying to 
make sure that they don't get infected and that they, God forbid, don't die. Because if that's their choice and that's how they want to live, then we have an obligation to actually make that possible. That's, I think, part of, you know, the core of being uh, a health policy person is making it possible for people to live the life they want. Hmm. Do you feel like that piece has been widely misunderstood? Well, uh, you know, if my inbox is anything uh, to go by, about a third of people never read the article. They read the title, which, of course, I didn't give. As you well know, when you write an article for a journal, they give the title to it. Um, and they don't actually read it and they don't un understand what I said and they don't actually recognize that it's a personal opinion. About a third of people, uh, and I would say a lot of people in the medical community say, oh, you've articulated my philosophy of life. Thank you very much. This is exactly my thinking. I've had a great run and I don't want to hang out and, and watch myself deteriorate or God forbid get Alzheimer's, et cetera. If I'm, I'm an outlier, we can consider it then. And then a third of the people said, Oh, very interesting piece where the interesting is like, you're making me really uncomfortable. You're forcing me to think about, you know, death and dying. You're forcing me to think about how I want to live and how I want to die. And that's really uncomfortable to me. Um, and, you know, those are the people I do want to think about it. Uh, they're smart people, but they really need to live their life as consciously and deliberately as possible, I think. And death is one of the most, it, it's one of the hardest things to confront. I I know, uh, you know, I'm an oncologist. I've, I've dealt with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people who've had to confront this issue. And, and it's very difficult. Um, and there's no two ways of getting about it. And I've thought about this for decades. Um, and I recently, you know, my father recently died six months ago or so. And, you know, we've had, had to have lots of discussions about it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about your dad. I, di I didn't know about that. Um, well, I want to ask you about something else. He lived, that you a long, good, he lived a long, good life, and uh, he was ready. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, you mentioned also you've been thinking, obviously, as everyone has about the coronavirus for the last four to five months, but you've been thinking about it actually as an advisor to Vice President Biden. Um, so I want to ask you if uh, Vice President Biden is successful in November and is elected president, what would his administration's response to the coronavirus look like? How would it be different from the current administration's response? Oh, it would be like night and day. I think uh, Joe Biden would take this seriously. Um, I think the first thing he would do is make sure that uh, if a vaccine has been approved or a in looking at a vaccine, he would make sure that we have all the steps necessary, not just we've got a vaccine, but that we can produce it. We can put it in vials in a sterile way. We can actually distribute it. We can administer it to people in their arm. We can actually make sure that it's uh, free to people, uh, that we're monitoring people so that we have all the data on effectiveness as well as safety when we distribute it to tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. Simultaneously, he'll make sure that we have, you know, all the PPE uh, doctors need that, you know, we're still investigating potential treatments when, uh, you know, if the vaccine doesn't work for everyone and people still get COVID. That actually we deploy uh, worldwide public health people monitoring and making sure we don't get into another one of these uh, situations where we have a pandemic and the United States is woefully underprepared. So I think there would be like night and day compared to the Trump administration, which has spent more time minimizing the problem and ignoring the problem uh, rather than addressing it in a competent manner. I mean, 
you know, just look at the testing regime. We were promised that everyone who wanted a test could get a test. You know, here we are in mid-July, we've got 800,000 tests a day. They're taking days and days and days to get results to people. Um, this is, you know, not a serious, uh, competent response. Well, that brings us to another question from the audience, um, which is about that federal funding for COVID-19. Nola Norris asks, what's the chance that the White House-driven move to cut federal funding for COVID-19 will succeed? And that, of course, is following up on some reports three or four days ago uh, saying that the Trump administration was seeking to phase out funding for testing and contact tracing, as well as funds for the CDC and the NIH. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I believe they've already backed away from the idea that we're going to cut for uh, funding for testing. Um, Congress would certainly not stand for that. And as they're debating the latest uh, uh, funding bill, uh, Congress would uh, certainly not pass anything that didn't have adequate funding for testing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I want to remind the listeners, testing is just but one part of uh, an adequate response. We do need good contact tracers. We do need to have in place vaccination clinics where we can give literally hundreds of millions of Americans vaccines over a very short period of time. Uh, there's lots of stuff we have to attend to to make sure that we respond effectively uh, to you know, get the coronavirus under control and therefore restart society. Uh, whether it's economic activity, schools, uh, sports, theater, whatever. Mm. Well, I want to ask you also about what you make of the role the CDC has played during this pandemic. At the beginning, you know, back in January and February, we were hearing from the CDC multiple times a week. They were holding briefings. Nancy Massonier was talking directly with reporters. We haven't heard from Dr. Massonier since early March, you know, after she made that very accurate prediction that it was a matter of when, not if, we were going to be affected deeply by COVID-19 in the U.S. Uh, yeah. and, and more recently, the administration has moved to um, collect its own data on hospital status uh, rather than go through the CDC system. I'm just curious to know what you think about all of this. Awful. <laughs> it's, a, it's awful that the administration has not built up the CDC, recognized that it is important. It hasn't been flawless. It's made a lot of mistakes, and we should be quite clear about that. The, their original testing kit was flawed. Uh, their recommendation on uh, face masks was flawed, and it took them too long to roll it back. Uh, they have not produced the kind of advice on how to reopen that we would hope. But a large part of that it, um, has been the fact that they haven't gotten the funding or the respect from this administration uh, and they've gotten denigration and therefore people, they can read the writing on the wall. They're not appreciated. If they try to do good work, it's uh, dismissed or circumvented. Um, and trying to circumvent the CDC is not going to solve the problem. You know, not having the data is not going to solve the problem. Uh, biology has this inexorable way of uh, not letting you talk your way out of things, of actually having to solve problems. Um, I think we do need to build up the CDC. Uh, it does have to regain its competence and its competence. We do need to recruit the best people there. Um, and I think we can't let it wither. And just because we're not having a big crisis doesn't mean you can go out and cut its budget. You know, the CDC there is there 
for exactly this kind of what if circumstance. You know, I like to analogize it to paying uh, insurance. You pay insurance, hoping you're not going to need it. But if you need it, you have to have competent coverage that really covers all your losses. And too long, we have said, well, you know, there's no pandemic. Maybe we don't need, you know, these posts looking out in other countries for a potential uh, serious infection. Maybe we don't need as many epidemiologists and others at the CDC. That has been a huge mistake. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I got the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, I want to bring in sort of the topic of your book and wrap it into this conversation. You know, which country has the world's best health care? Which one is it? And did they have the best COVID-19 response too? Oh, Meg, Meg, you want the answer without doing the hard work of reading the book. Well, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me first say that, um, you know, a lot of it depends upon what you want out of a healthcare system, you know, and not everyone is looking for the same thing. Uh, common to, you know, well people who aren't using the healthcare system that much, they want, you know, freedom of choice of doctors and insurance companies. They want to have, uh, be able to go there with no wait times. They want to have no or low co-pays when they go and visit the doctor. Um, that combination, that's the top priority for some people. And there's a collection of countries which fits that bill. But other people might be interested in long-term care because that's what they're older or they have a relative who's older. Other people might be interested in having comprehensive benefits, making sure everything's covered. Um, and there are many other issues. You know, they may want a low budget on healthcare because they want spending to go to other things besides healthcare. They may want low drug prices. And there are different countries which fit that bill. What we ended up in is recognizing that uh, several conclusions. First, the United States is not in the top 10 uh, countries in the world in terms of its healthcare system. That probably is not a surprise to people. Although I will say that if you go back a decade, that probably wasn't the way most people viewed the United States healthcare system. There are still people who think we have the best. That's definitely not true. We're probably also not the worst. Um, that I think, I do think for a variety of reasons, China is worse than we are. Um, we did have a group at the top uh, that did include Germany and the Netherlands and Norway and Taiwan, although I put Taiwan in that group with an asterisk, mainly because um, their hospitals are, uh, some people have described them as uh, uh, glorified uh, graduate dormitories. Uh, they're bare bones. Uh, your family has to come in and, and provide nursing uh, and custodial care to you, feed you, get change your bed linen and things like that. 
Um, but it's very low cost, uh, very high satisfaction uh, with the system. They have, you know, all the technology we do, um, but it's it's not as personal as a lot of Americans would expect. But Taiwan has done remarkably well in the COVID-19 situation uh, for a whole series of reasons. One is they're very suspicious of the Chinese and they took the SARS episode very seriously and therefore they were on alert. Second, they have a face mask culture. So they're wearing a face mask. You don't have to try to persuade them. The whole population does it. And that we know has made a big difference. And third, they have this health card. Everyone has a health card. They go to the doctor, they swipe the health card. People know they've been to the doctor. There's information that the Ministry of Health has on people, how old they are, where they live, what their health conditions are. And then when they leave the doctor, it's also swiped so the doctor can charge for the services they provided. This allowed the Ministry of Health, it gives almost real time, you know, with a delay of a day or two, uh, almost real time data to the Ministry of Health. So they were able to identify people who had been to China by merging this data, this health data with their immigration data, who'd been to China, who'd been to Wuhan and get them tested right away. They also saw who had respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, coughing, um, and other problems, but didn't have a positive flu exam. Those people also hmm. need to be tested. The consequence, fewer than 500 cases, seven deaths. Germany's also done remarkably well. Uh, they did a very good job of uh, isolating people, especially high risk uh, people, of keeping people in uh, uh, lockdown until the transmission rate was very low. They also happen to have a lot of hospital beds, 40% more hospital beds on a per capita basis than we do. And so they had a lot of extra capacity and they tend to be averse to putting people, intubating people, which we now know is not a good thing uh, during COVID. Um, and so they actually uh, remarkably uh, did remarkably well too. Well, I know you have to go. I do have one last quick question for you, but before I get to that one, I, sure. I do just want to follow up on on these examples from around the world because, you know, the U.S. just hasn't been able to do it. When you look at almost any aspect of this response, you know, why not? I mean, is it just the lack, of, as I'm sure you're probably going to say, of a coordinated federal response, as a lot of people have, have um, said, but why couldn't the states come together better? Why couldn't the U.S. do a better job? Well, it is leadership. Um, you know, that's not the only thing, but I would say if you had to pick one thing, it's leadership at the top. I've often done a thought experiment. I'm a, I like to do history. Maybe you can tell that from the uh, books on my shelf. Uh, and, you know, uh, when I think about what Lyndon Johnson would have done and all the task force he would have appointed, a separate task force for PPE, a separate task force for therapeutics, a separate task force for testing, um, we would have gotten our arms around it. It might not have been the most efficient response, but it would have been a thorough and comprehensive response. Um, and we have been lacking that. We also have a situation where I think uh, uh, our hospitals, uh, you know, we, we have a fragmented healthcare system uh, between the payers and the hospitals and doctors, and that hasn't done us well. We don't have the data that you can get out of uh, uh, Taiwan. I think that would have been enormously helpful. Could we get that? Yes. Uh, would it require probably changing some laws and you know making insurance companies actually begin getting that near real real time data, making doctors uh, use systems that provide that real-time data. 
But that's going to be really important to do, I think, to prevent the next pandemic and actually to respond to lots of other more minor problems, well, not minor, serious problems, but aren't, you know, requiring lockdown of the country. But the public right, health measures we need, the physical distancing. Yeah, the physical distancing, the closing of uh, businesses, the uh, clo enclosed spaces, you know, that required comprehensive leadership. Uh, we didn't have it. The president was advised to close the country, um, but he refused to do it. And he has, you know, yesterday he said, well, he's always been for masks. That's patently false. He's made fun of people. He hasn't worn a mask himself. He's had meetings at the Rose Garden where people are, you know, without masks right next to each other, even after the CDC recommended it. So, and you don't have leadership doing the stuff that's recommended. It's hard to get 330 million people walking in the same direction, feeling like they're contributing. Mm. Well, I promised I would let you go before five, but last quick question. I've heard you say a couple times uh, that you're an optimist. What is it that gives you the most hope yeah. right now? <laughs> Lots of shots on goal for a vaccine. Um, and I do think, you know, we've got whatever, 140, 50, 60 potential candidates, a lot of them are going to flame out. They're never going to even get the people. But we've got, I think it's now 18 or 19 in human trials. You know, one or two of them will work. Um, and I think that uh, we're going to be able to get our arms around that. Plus, I am somewhat optimistic, given some recent data about these potential for prophylactic, you know, taking some medications or putting things in your nose that prevent you from getting COVID. Uh, or reduce the chances that you'd get COVID if you were exposed. Um, all of that, I think, is is positive. I am more upset and depressed about the ability of the country to, you know, uh, persevere in uh, uh, the public health measures that we need people to do. And that, I think, you know, that is very, very disappointing. We are a stronger people than that. And we really need to know that we're all in it together and that, you know, physically distancing, wearing a mask, that's something we're doing for ourselves, but it's also something we're doing for the larger community. And we care about the larger community. Um, and, and that just, it's been hard to get that, get people together in that. And, and, and I certainly hope that the next administration will be able to do a better job. Uh, it's something that Joe Biden is particularly talented at doing. That was Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He's a physician, bioethicist, and author. He and I spoke on July 22, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, The Path Forward series. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care, and thanks for listening. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.